All right, so what do Andrea Bocelli, Stevie Wonder, and Ray Charles all have in common? It's not perhaps your most common opening line to a sermon, but there it is. What do they all have in common? Yeah, they're all blind, and they're all extraordinarily gifted. In fact, many have suggested that those who can't see compensate for their lack of sight with enhanced hearing or perhaps other abilities. We even refer to people with sort of like spidey senses, right? Superhuman powers. Even the Marvel comic, if you know Daredevil, right? So he's blind and yet his blindness contributes to the sensitivity he has to the power and and unique gifting he has in others' ways, right? He takes down all the mob kingpins and what have you. I don't read comics, but I basically know that's the story. All right, so you get folks like that. I uh, even heard an interview with a college coach the other day. He's a swim coach, and he's blind. And you wonder, that'd be awfully hard to coach a team and assess folks if if you can't see. But though he's blind, he can actually identify every swimmer simply by the sound that their hands make as they enter the water, by the way their body rolls, by the rhythm of their kick. He can discern every swimmer. He can even discern when one of her swimmers is tightening up, right, when they need to stretch out and they need to loosen up. He can discern all these things, though he can't see because his sense of hearing, right, perception is miraculous in other ways. It's really extraordinary. And it appears there's actually a science behind all of this. Right? It's not that blind people naturally hear better or can taste or touch or smell things better than others. Rather, it's that the brain rewires itself. If one sense is lost... The, the part of the brain that would normally go to sort of discerning and making sense of that particular sense, well, it's actually sort of rewired in such a way that, that it actually gets put to work processing other senses. So what can initially appear as a deficiency is actually a doorway to something much greater. What appears as a deficiency actually becomes a doorway to something much greater. Well, friend, if that's true physically, might it be true spiritually as well? Might that be true spiritually as well? Well, that's what we're going to be thinking about some this morning, and I'd invite you now, if you just take your Bibles, if you've got a Bible, open up to Mark 10. We're going to be in verses 46 through 52 this morning, and if you don't happen to have a Bible, hopefully you grabbed one of the worship guides as you came in, and you can find the text to our passage You can find that on page 9 of that worship guide. Now, if you're visiting with us this morning, uh, we are at the very end of Jesus' earthly ministry. So his miracles, right, all of his teaching, that's been trending nonstop on Twitter for about three years. But we're coming near the very end of that season. He's been mobbed by the crowds and by paparazzi wherever he goes. And there's even growing whispers that this Jesus may be the long-awaited Messiah, Right, the promised king of God's people. And here Jesus is now marching toward Jerusalem. And you got to remember it's Passover time of year as we come into the end of chapter 10, which means many Jewish pilgrims are also, they're walking, they're making their pilgrimage, and, and they're converging alongside Jesus and the disciples, and they're marching together as they come toward the holy city. 
And as they'd be marching, they'd be singing the songs of ascent, which were normally sung during that pilgrimage. So Psalms like 120 through 134, they'd be singing those as they march. Now, if you've ever seen sort of Les Mis, the musical, you know there's that, that most I think, uh, familiar sort of anthem of the, the revolutionaries, the one that gets repeated over and over. I'm not going to sing it, right? That would be, you'd all walk out. But I will at least share it, okay? It goes something like this. Do you hear the people sing? Singing a song of angry men? It's the music of a people who will not be slaves again. When the beating of your heart echoes the beating of the drums, there's a life about to start when tomorrow comes. Right? That's how the song goes. And that right there, I think, captures the kind of spirit the kind of revolutionary fervor that's, that's lingering in the air as Jesus and the disciples and the converging pilgrims are all singing and marching towards Jerusalem. And yet there's one final city they have to pass through before they hit those steep slopes, and that's the city of Jericho. And that's where we pick up uh, this morning, Mark chapter 10, beginning in verse 46. We read, and they came to Jericho, And as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, take heart, get up. He's calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and he came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, what do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. Jesus said to him, go your way. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. Well, now at first glance, we might be tempted when we finish that story to read it and say, ah, you know what? Like that's another miracle story. We've had lots of miracle stories here in the book of Mark. Jesus healing a blind man. We've seen Jesus heal blind men before. Kind of like big deal. Let's move on because, of course, perhaps like the crowds, we're anxious to get to Jerusalem, especially if we don't know how the story's going to end. That's where all the excitement is. That's what we're waiting for. That's, to go back to Les Mis, that's when life's about to start and when tomorrow comes. That's when they expect the revolution to happen. But actually, there's a lot more taking place in these few short verses in this last and final scene before Jesus and the disciples hit Jerusalem. For starters, it is the last, it's the last miracle in Mark's gospel. And interestingly, it's the only miracle where actually the person healed is named. It's the only one. 
And of any of the synoptics, I mean, Matthew, Mark, and, and Luke, and particularly Mark, only one where the one healed is named. I wonder if you've ever thought about that, if you ever noticed that. Why, why is it in so many children's stories that children know Bartimaeus' name? It's because, again, he alone is unique in being named. And I think that in part contributes to the warmth of the story, right? The intimacy of the story between Jesus and this blind man, Bartimaeus. And though it's a healing miracle, we see that clearly, yet unlike the others, the emphasis is not on the astonishment of the crowds, right? The emphasis is a bit different because instead the scene opens, right, with Bartimaeus and where is he? Well, he's begging beside the road. But then it finishes with him following on the road. At the end of it, he's no longer beside the road. He's on the road. He's on the way following Jesus, right? So he goes from being destitute at the beginning and he's being pictured as a disciple as the story closes. And in that sense, this is actually a story much more to do with discipleship than it has to do with, with healing, which makes sense because remember, if we step back and think about these chapters we've been in, Mark 8 through 10, if we step back and look at them, we've been thinking about this whole question of what does Jesus' messiahship mean for the disciples' own discipleship, for how they, in other words, how do they walk with Jesus? And if you recall, it began back in chapter 8, and it began with, with the disciples being warned by Jesus about the leaven right, of the Pharisees and Herod. And if you remember, just turn back, just look back at a few chapters, chapter 8, and look back there at at 14 through 21. So he says in 15, watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And what do the disciples do? They start looking at one another like, leaven of the Pharisees, hey, do you got any bread? I don't have any bread. What's he talking about bread for? I don't have bread. You don't have any bread. Leaven of Pharisees. The disciples are thoroughly confused. And Jesus gets a bit exasperated with them. And he, he just looked down to 8.17. He says, why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? Right there, Jesus is warning the disciples. Yeah, you think you see perfectly well, but you're blind. You actually don't see. They think he's talking about bread. He's trying to warn them of the yeast of the Pharisees and Herod, right? The yeast of of self-interest and of pride. And it's why this whole section on discipleship is therefore bracketed by what? By two healings of blind men. So right after that, you've got the blind man at Bethsaida. They came to Bethsaida. Jesus heals a blind man. And at the conclusion of this whole section, it starts just the same way. And they came, not to Bethsaida, they came to Jericho. 1046, and another blind man will be healed, right? So this, that's bracketed, this, these two healings are bracketed there at the end, two blind men receiving sight, and everything in between stands in stark contrast to those two men receiving sight, right? Everything in between with all the disciples, it just reflects their blurred vision, their own confusion, their own spiritual blindness. Every time Jesus predicting his death, right? They're, they're discussing and muttering about who's greatest. Even that question, if you look at our, our passage, chapter 10, verse 51, that question, Jesus says, what do you want me to do for you? It's a question he puts to Bartimaeus. But if it sounds vaguely familiar, 
It's because it's the same question Jesus put to James and John last week. Look there at verse 36. He said to them, what do you want me to do for you? So part of what's happening is Mark is contrasting. He's contrasting the Bartimaeus and his request to see. He's going to contrast that with James and John and their request for, for status. And in all of this, Mark is presenting Bartimaeus as a true disciple, as one who, in contrast to so much of the disciples, genuinely sees and genuinely understands, though he is blind. So if you want to know what it means to follow Jesus, the very thing he's been trying to teach his disciples along the way, Mark's saying, don't look at the disciples, their vision is still blurred, look instead, ironically, to this blind man who sees considerably better. And in short, I think what Mark is helping us to see through this, this healing of Bartimaeus is that following Jesus requires the eyes of faith. Just simply following Jesus requires the eyes of faith. And I think more specifically, if we, if we drill in and look a little bit deeper, this encounter that Jesus and Bartimaeus have, I think it teaches us Three things about what it means to follow with those eyes of faith. And it, it's going to require an understanding of, of our condition. And then our confession. And then our calling. So those are sort of the three sort of headings, if you will. Three points I want us to work through as we think. What does it mean to follow Jesus with the eyes of faith? We're going to think first about our condition. A right understanding of that. Of our confession. And then our calling. So let's first think about our condition. Now the scene opens again. Jesus, the disciples, they're coming to Jericho. Now, of course, some of us think of Jericho. We think of the kid song, right? Joshua fought the battle of Jericho. But, of course, if you actually know your Bible, Joshua didn't fight the battle of Jericho. Joshua didn't really do anything but do some circles. God fought the battle of Jericho. And yet, it was the city coming out of their deliverance from Egypt it was one of the first great acts where God provided for his people, defeated their enemies. And it was one of the oldest cities. It remains one of the oldest cities on earth. Perhaps the oldest continuously inhabited city, dating back to 9000 BC. Now, by the time Jesus and the disciples are arriving, it's been recently sort of redone. The whole city has by the Herodian dynasty. They've turned it into their own winter palace. It's called the City of Roses. So just picture it, you've got the growing crowds, you've got the anticipation, you've got the revolutionary fervor as, as this Passover week, as it comes and as it looms before them. Jericho, the place where God had destroyed his enemies before, his Messiah now marching before the people again. With Jesus' arrival, you could say, right, the city of roses right now there, it's in full bloom. And it's just then, though, that the whole scene shifts to this poor blind beggar, this man sitting by the roadside, this individual who's carefully staked out his spot. He's got this prime location beside the road. He's trying to capitalize on the, on the spiritual mood of all the religiously-minded pilgrims as they make their way to Jerusalem. Perhaps he's worked on his cardboard sign. He can't see it. He's got some friends to assist him. He's been practicing his little pitch. He wants to generate sympathy, right? Not go too heavy, though. Go too heavy, it might push people off. 
He's likely caked in dust from the pilgrims that have been passing by now for days, desperately in need of a shower, right, of a shave and the rest, but such amenities are not afforded to a guy like this. His blindness has condemned him to a life of poverty, a life of darkness. It's reduced him to a kind of beggarhood like this. And keep in mind, it can't get much worse in the days of Jesus, right? There wasn't a federal welfare program. There was, there's not a sort of social safety net for individuals like this that we know today. This guy is wholly dependent upon whatever small acts of mercy, whatever small acts of generosity might be tossed his way. And in a world that often saw sickness as a consequence of sin, poverty as a curse, a guy like this, well, he is at an express disadvantage. He is the very picture of helpless, the very picture of destitute. And here's the thing, we pity his condition. But part of what Mark is presenting to us is as though we pity that condition and we look at it as if it's not our condition, Mark wants us to see that we have a lot more in common with Bartimaeus than we may realize. Right? We're all but beggars in this life. We have nothing. We own nothing. We come into this world with nothing. We leave it with nothing. Right? From dust we came to dust we will return. Now, of course, we live, all of us do, under this pretty happy illusion of autonomy and of self-sufficiency, and yet underneath it all, we are but blind beggars. We, all of us, are wholly dependent creatures, all at the mercy of age, all at the mercy of disease, all at the mercy of death, all of our preparations, all of our hard work, everything that we have, that we have strived after in life, all that can be undone in an instant. Driver falls asleep, drifts into our lane, a tiny cancer cell, or a single virus we can't touch, we can't taste, we can't smell, a single virus that does very little to the majority of people who, who get it, don't even know they have it, and yet still can turn our world and our lives upside down, right? We're not in control of our lives. And all the education and all the wealth of the world, right, that can't save us. And here's the thing, Bartimaeus, this is what he understands about himself. He's under no illusions like us. He knows he is but a beggar. He knows he is nothing. So many who are passing him by, full of wealth and riches and the world and future promise, and yet their lives are so full they would have very little room for the grace of God. But not Bartimaeus. Spiritually speaking, I mean, we are born blind. We're conceived in darkness. All are born into darkness. The difference is that unlike so many who are in spiritual darkness today, Bartimaeus he knew what his problem was. He understood his problem. He understood his blindness. He grasped his condition. And in that sense, you could say that his own blindness, well, that own blindness did give him a heightened spiritual sensitivity. It awakened him to the darkness. It awakened him to the desperation of his own condition. And so the irony is that spiritually speaking, this blind man who couldn't see anything had better vision when it came to spiritual matters than those who possessed everything. And they passed right alongside him. Someone once 
bluntly asked, right? Helen Keller, blind and deaf, just rather bluntly and crassly asked, hey, isn't it terrible to be blind? And she responded, well, better to be blind and see with your heart than to have two good eyes and see nothing. Friend, what about you this morning? What about you? Did you come through these doors confident in your life? Confident that, yeah, you've largely got things under control. So confident, in fact, that you don't really need the help of another. You're not dependent upon another. Certainly not in need of a savior. Well, recognize Bartimaeus is desperate. And he knew it. He knew his need. He understood his own plight and his condition. And it was exactly this desperation that became the doorway to his faith. It was this desperate condition that became the doorway to faith. For Bartimaeus comes. And as we see, he comes to Jesus not on the basis of his strength, but he comes on the basis of his weakness. He brought nothing to Jesus but his need. And in doing so, he fulfilled one of the fundamental laws when it comes to the kingdom of God. There is no other way to come to Jesus but on the basis of our need and his adequacy to fill that need. His adequacy to meet that need. Friend, could that be you this morning? Shouldn't that be you this morning? Because we look at this poor blind beggar and we pity him. He's got nothing but a cloak to his name. And yet it's exactly that condition that places him in a far superior position to receive God's mercy than the rich, righteous man Jesus encountered along the way just a few verses back. But friends, Bartimaeus, he not only helps us understand the condition we're actually naturally in, the condition we deceive ourselves we're not in, but we're truly in, he not only helps us understand our condition, but actually he teaches us something more. He teaches us about what our confession must be. And that brings us to the second thing I want us to look at, our confession. Not just our condition, but also our confession. So we've got Bartimaeus. And as we come to the scene, he's likely begging as he would any other day. He hears a crowd approaching. He can tell this time it's a large crowd that approaches. So what does he do? He readies his sign, right? He puts his best beggar face on, whatever that might mean. He does all that. He spreads out his cloak to gather whatever scraps might be tossed his way. But this time, he hears a name. He hears the name Jesus of Nazareth. And his heart, it leaps. I mean, could it be? The man who, as we read earlier from Isaiah 35, the man who opens the eyes of the blind and unstops the ears of the deaf, the one who makes the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy, is that man passing my way? And he starts to dream, he starts to to vision what it might be like and his heart leaps at the thought that Jesus is coming his way and he experiences a ray of hope in that moment that he's probably never experienced in his whole dark, dismal life. 
But how could this man possibly get Jesus' attention? How will he be heard amidst all the clamoring crowds, all of the noise? And we've already seen how Jesus, how, how Jesus' disciples jealously guard him, right? Protect him from people like him. Remember what he did with the parents who tried to bring their children to Jesus? Right? The disciples know how to guard and to keep people like Bartimaeus away. But this is his only opportunity, his one shot. He knows if there's anyone that could possibly help him in his condition, it's this Jesus. And so as the crowds pass by, as some of those voices already begin to fade away in the distance, his heart starts to, to fall. He knows Jesus will soon be gone. And he just cries out, really bellowing from the, from the top of his lungs. The crowd knows him as Jesus of Nazareth. But the man, Bartimaeus, what does he call him? He cries out to him, Jesus, son of David, verse 47. Jesus, son of David, which is fascinating because in Mark, no one has yet to call Jesus son of David. Not one has done that. Up until this point, the only one who's clearly confessed Jesus as the Messiah is Peter, back in 829. And yet here, now, this blind beggar beside the road, he shows remarkable spiritual awareness by recognizing Jesus as the son of David, the coming Davidic king. That's what that title expresses. You know, one of the great promises of the Old Testament is laid out in 2 Samuel 7 where God assured David that he would establish David's throne forever. That's the repeated word, just forever, forever, forever. He would raise up one of his offspring after him, that his steadfast love would not depart from him, that the violent men would afflict them no more through this one, and through this promised offspring, they would know rest and Bartimaeus, and calling Jesus the son of David, he is in effect saying all those promises of 2 Samuel 7, that great prophetic hope for the people of Israel, it's right there, it's in that guy. It's in Jesus. It would be this king who, Psalm 72, 12, would deliver the needy when he calls, and the poor who have no helper. It would be on this day when this king comes that, quote, the deaf shall hear the words of the book and out of their gloom and darkness, the eyes of the blind shall see. Isaiah 29, 18. Even the way that Bartimaeus speaks of Jesus in verse 51, right? He calls him rabbi. But actually under that, it's, it's not the normal word for rabbi. It's, it's actually a more reverent word. It's a really rare word, rabbani. And it's the first time anyone has referred to Jesus as rabbani. A term that was never really used of people, but used in addressing God in prayer, which just speaks again to how Bartimaeus understood that as Jesus of Nazareth approached, he was not like any other individual. He was not like any other passing rabbi with his, with his band of fans, someone who would die and pass and his fans would pass and be no more. He knew Jesus was actually much more than that. You see, what he lacks, Bartimaeus, in physical eyesight he makes up for in spiritual insight. Yeah, he may lack his eyesight, but spiritual insight, he's got it all there. And that confession that he's making is teaching us something, that Jesus isn't just another teacher. 
He's not merely another holy man. He's not just another deeply religious man. He's not a spiritual guru. He's not just another mystical figure. He is the Savior King, the Son of David. And you'll never understand Jesus until you understand that this Jesus of the Gospels, this man of history, was also the long-awaited Savior and King of God's people. And that is, in fact, what we sing about every Christmas when we gather. I mean, how did we open this morning in that old, familiar Christmas tune? Joy to the world, the Lord is come. Let earth receive her mystic, her spiritual guru, her teacher. No, let earth receive her king, her king. Verse 2, joy to the earth, the teacher lectures. No, joy to the earth, the Savior reigns, as the hymn goes. Right? He's the Savior King. That's who Jesus is. That's what Bartimaeus is confessing. Or the second song we sing, you know, come thou long expected Jesus. Might be a little less familiar to you, but a great Christmas hymn. That second stanza, born thy people to deliver, born a child And yet, a king, deliverer, savior, and king. That's exactly who Jesus is. And Bartimaeus may be blind, but he can see Jesus in a way the disciples and the crowds were not seeing Jesus. Even though they had lived with him and walked among him, they had missed that about Jesus. He's not only this carpenter from Nazareth. No, he is, he's the world's everlasting king. And he's not just merely a teacher, right? He is the Savior. That's what Bartimaeus understands. And that's the only proper confession one can make about Jesus. Good teacher, kind healer, religious revolutionary, whatever the world will often say about Jesus, maybe that's what you think, one of those titles as you think of Jesus. I know that's the kind of stuff I was taught growing up Unitarian, Those kinds of things, good religious teacher on the whole. The problem is all of those ascriptions, all those epithets, they're they're wrong. They're actually dead wrong. So some of you may know the name Charlie Pride. He passed away sadly this week from uh, complications of COVID. And if I spoke of Charlie Pride as a country singer, that would be a true statement. But it would woefully miss the significance and meaning of his own life and work. Because Charlie Pride wasn't just a country singer. No, he was America's first African-American country star. In a time in which African-Americans weren't really welcomed into country music and didn't sing much country music. And Charlie Pride paved the way for others to follow after him. And if you miss that fact... Right then you're misunderstanding who Charlie Pride was. You know, so I can say Chuck Yeager is a farmer. Another guy, sadly, passed away this week. That's true. He grew up on a West Virginia farm. He knew how to farm. But Chuck Yeager, we don't know him as a farmer, right? He was the World War II ace. He was the test pilot. He was the fastest man alive, the first one to break the sound barrier. That's who, that's who Chuck Yeager was. That's how we know him. And if we don't know that side of him, we don't really know him. It's the same with Jesus. Calling him merely a good teacher, an inspirational religious figure, right? That woefully misses the point. 
It doesn't grasp that which is most significant and most important about him. How all of these streams converge in Jesus as the son of David, God's savior king. And we know that we're on the right track because what happens in verse 49? Bartimaeus is calling out to the son of David and Jesus stops dead in his tracks, just freezes, stops moving. Maybe you've been in a, in a crowd of people. Perhaps you're at a, at a game, at a stadium when we used to do those things or you know, you're outside somewhere and there's all this sound and noise, commotion, cacophony of voices and the rest. And then you discreetly hear someone call your name. And what happens? You freeze. You recognize your name. You're wondering, okay, who's calling my name? What do they need? What do I need to know about this situation? Right? It puts you on alert. It puts you on aware because they've identified your name. And it's like that here. Jesus, he hears his name, son of David. He knows that's him. And he freezes and stops. But not just Jesus, the son of David. No, he's, he's more than that. Right? That's what Bartimaeus is confessing. He's the Savior King. That's what stands behind it. So if you've come this morning, and maybe something about Bartimaeus' condition has helped you see something of your own condition, maybe the circumstances of your life have just confirmed that perhaps you're not in control as you thought, Mark is helping you see, and Jesus wants you to know, that he stands as a willing Savior. He stands as the one who wills, we thought of last week. He didn't come to be served, but he came to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. He came to die as a substitute in the place of sinners. So that's in fact what we're celebrating when we celebrate Christmas. The coming of Jesus to redeem his people by dying as a ransom for their sins. And if you see your need for that, for that redemption, then Jesus calls out to you as he's gonna call out to Bartimaeus and he stands ready and willing to save if you'll exercise those eyes of faith and trust in him, hold fast to him, lay hold of Jesus by repenting of your sins and looking to him, then you could know everlasting life. You could know the kind of salvation, the spiritual healing that's being pictured in this blind man receiving his sight. And you can receive that same sight. But I want you to know something else about what marks this true confession here. Especially if you've come this morning and maybe you're a college student or maybe you're just, yeah, you're in your early 20s, mid-20s, maybe you're a high schooler or younger, right, where culture has turned more decidedly against, obviously, Christianity. Notice that this, this confession, it's made not only of the person of Jesus, but this confession is made despite opposition. Bartimaeus makes this confession despite obvious opposition, because we read as Bartimaeus was crying out that many, verse 48, many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. Right? Bartimaeus was no fan of the crowds that day. They were not super happy with Bartimaeus. If you've been to a movie, and I know we don't do this much right now, but even if you're in your home, sometimes there's that person that's always running their mouth in the middle of a movie. They're like, would you just... Please be quiet, right? The rest of us are trying to watch this. We're trying to enjoy this. You keep running your trap, like just got some duct tape, just tie that thing down, right? That's sort of the annoying guy that 
or gal maybe, right? This is, that's Bartimaeus here. He's that figure in this, right? Stop your yapping. Nobody cares what you have to say, you blind beggar, right? People are probably saying, would someone shut that guy up, right, yesterday? And that, though, didn't dissuade Bartimaeus. We read in verse 48, but he cried out, what? All the more. Son of David, have mercy on me. And it's interesting because that word rebuke of the crowds to Bartimaeus, it's actually the same word that Peter used when he rebuked Jesus, when Jesus first predicted his own death. It's the same word the disciples use when they rebuke the parents for bringing their children to Jesus in the last chapter. That word rebuke is often used of those who are opposing the work of God. Right here, the crowds are being presented as those who are opposing the work of God by rebuking and rejecting the only person who actually sees Jesus as he truly is. So right here, that's the crowds. And my Christian friend, just let that be a reminder to you this morning. Again, especially if you're younger, this world has never been, but is even more obviously now, not a friend of Jesus. It is not a friend of any who hope to follow Jesus. The world will always discourage you from coming to Christ. They'll rebuke you. They'll mock you. They'll make you feel stupid and silly as they do to Bartimaeus for crying out to Jesus for help. They'll prevent you from following him, oppose you in it, whatever it'll be. They'll be just like these crowds. But the beautiful thing is that Jesus welcomes the one who comes in persistent faith. It's actually that persistent faith that marks disciples throughout the book of Mark. And we've actually, again, we've seen this already. So we saw that persistent faith in the faith of the friends of the paralyzed man. The faith of those friends who will take him upon a roof and dig through the top of a roof to get their friend to Jesus. It's the persistence of that hemorrhaging woman who must overcome her great fear in order to experience the healing touch of Jesus. It's the persistence of Jairus, who despite being told that his daughter is already dead, must still yet believe and have faith. It's the persistence of the, this uh, Syrophoenician woman, who won't be dissuaded when, when she asks for help, and Jesus' first words are a rebuff. Right? I, he, he effectively says, I came to have a mission to the Jews, you're not a Jew. And yet, even when Jesus initially rebuffs her, she still yet persists with him, and he graciously meets her. Right? There's even a parable in Luke's gospel, right? We know it, the parable of the persistent widow. Because confessing faith, right, saving faith, is persevering, persistent faith that keeps crying out and keeps coming to Jesus. That is what Jesus asks of you. That's what he calls of you. And he rewards that kind of faith. Because we read in verse 49 what Jesus calls the man. And you know right there, when Jesus stops dead in his tracks and then calls the obnoxious blind man screaming from the outskirts right down the road, when Jesus stops and calls the man, the disciples are like, oh my gosh, here we go again. Oh, here we go. 
right here. Seriously, Jesus, we don't have time for this, right? We're going to Jerusalem. We're marching. We have our orders. You've already run off the rich man. And now you're going to stop and have a conversation with this destitute man who can't possibly help us usher in the kingdom of God. They're groaning and moaning. They're probably rolling their eyes and whispering at one another, wondering how this is possibly going to help them in their mission. And that's because they miss what's happening right before their very eyes. Sometimes we too must take time for those most neglected and most forgotten by the world. And when we take that time and minister, we are following in the footsteps of Jesus what he would have us to do. For if we're always too busy, if we're always about far more important things, then we too might be missing the work of God that is happening before our very eyes, blinding ourselves to it. And Jesus will show the disciples by drawing in this man. Remember that question, verse 50, what do you want me to do for you? The same question he put to James and John. And he's drawing out the contrast in those two responses. Bartimaeus wants to see Jesus. James and John, they want self-exalting, self-serving status. One seems to be after a relationship and the other is after obvious rewards. And it's because of Bartimaeus' true faith, his saving faith, that we read he is healed. That healing right, he's made well, can refer to both physical healing and spiritual healing. And here I think it has both those connotations. So the very sight the disciples need, the sight to see Jesus for who he truly is, that sight is possessed by the blind beggar standing right before them, and they're dismissing him. But if we're to follow Jesus, okay, we've thought some about our condition, we've thought about the confession, but just lastly and briefly, thirdly, our calling. Let's just think for a moment about our calling. Because Jesus, verse 49, he calls out to Bartimaeus. And that call is the same word used earlier in Mark 9.35 when Jesus calls and summons the 12 disciples to him. So by calling out to Bartimaeus, he's treating him and calling out to him as a disciple. And what does Bartimaeus do? In verse 50, but we read that he throws off his cloak and he sprang up and he came to Jesus. And it's all presented with vivid imagery. You can almost picture yourself there. You can see it maybe in a movie. And it's, I think right there, it's a beautiful picture of what it looks like to follow Jesus. Bartimaeus, what does he do? He casts aside all that he owns. His ratty old cloak and whatever small pittances he's received between those dusty folds, right, he dumps them. He leaves them behind, throws it aside. He does here what the rich man would not do. He leaves it all. He sheds the old man. He casts away his former life. And he eagerly and expectantly and likely stumbling as well, right, finds his way joyfully, though, to Jesus. And he epitomizes, I think, what we read in Hebrews 12.1. Let us also lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus. Right? 
Bartimaeus looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Because, friend, that's the calling of a true Christian. It's not enough to simply understand our condition. It's not enough to even have the right confession. Even a confession in the face of great opposition. No, that's actually not enough. The true follower faithfully walks with Jesus. That's the call. And think about it for a moment. Put yourself in Bartimaeus' shoes. You've just been given sight. A whole new world has opened up to you. The most beautiful and magnificent world that you could ever dream of. And perhaps you've been hearing about Jesus' healings. And you're imagining a world where maybe one day you get your sight back. And if that's me, I got a bucket list. Like, I've never seen the pyramids. All right, I want to go see the pyramids if I'm Bartimaeus. I mean, maybe I want to climb Mount Sinai. I, I want to get some sense of what it was like when Moses was up there. Maybe I'm thinking, okay, Rome and the Forum, that would be awesome to see. I got a bucket list of stuff I want to see and things I want to go do. And what does Bartimaeus do? Lays it all aside. He walks with Jesus. And that's where we're left. That's how the story closes. Bartimaeus, that's not accidental, following him on the way. That expression, on the way, is used some seven plus times in these three chapters. It's kind of a catchphrase for what it means to be a disciple, to be a follower along the way. It's a journey. It's a path we walk with Jesus, which is why if you read the book of Acts, they weren't initially called Christians. They were called followers of the way. It was only later they were called Christians. And it seems Bartimaeus faithfully followed. He didn't turn back. He didn't turn in. He likely walked with Jesus up to Jerusalem. That beautiful face that Bartimaeus would have beheld when he was first given sight, but days later would be marred beyond all recognition. And yet he continued. Bartimaeus persisted. I think that's why he's the only one healed who's mentioned by name. Because unlike many of the others who were healed by Jesus, Bartimaeus continued to faithfully walk. Mark, I think, mentions his name because others would have recognized his name and would have known his name, which is why he mentions his name. This blind beggar transformed from a life of destitution to beautiful discipleship because confessing Jesus and being committed to Jesus, right? Those two things always go hand in hand. Confession of Jesus and commitment to Jesus. Any faith which does not lead to discipleship is not saving faith. Spurious faith. It's false faith. When we come to Jesus, we must be prepared to follow Jesus, even if it takes us uphill to a cross. That's what it means to be a disciple. That's what these chapters have been all about. Friend, the only question is, does that describe you? Does that mark you? Have you understood your condition? Have you made the right confession? Perhaps in spite of opposition. And have you persisted in your calling? That's what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. And there is not another kind. 
And there is not another way. Let's pray. God, we give you praise that we can take a passage that perhaps is so easily to run right over, sounds familiar to us, and to stop. And in your glory and in your kindness, you can teach us so much more from it. Lord, we pray that as Jesus called and effectually drew Bartimaeus to him, if you have done that with us, oh God, we pray by your spirit you would keep us. And by our own exercise of our faith, we would be persistent and walking with you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.